0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We are almost at the end of Advent, and we've tried to put together a good show for you today. For the bottom of the hour, we have Father Roger Landry, who always runs out our show with a beautiful homily. He will be joining us for a longer segment. I wanted to talk to him today because he just came back from the Holy Land where he was guiding a pilgrimage of uh, young men and women. And I wanted to hear about the Holy Land and the way it informs our understanding of the gospel, especially in this time when we're preparing for Christmas. But first, I'm happy to have my TCA colleague and co-hostess Ashley McGuire back with me, and we will be catching up with a close friend and a familiar voice on EWTN. Her name is Monse Alvarado. She's the host of the great TV show EWTN News In Depth, and she is also the Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk again about the Dobbs case which is something that we can't seem to get away from because it's so important. The fate of Roe v. Wade hangs in the balance. Uh, She knows a lot about that, but we're also going to ask her to give us a review of the biggest religious freedom cases and issues that we should be keeping an eye on now and as we go into 2022. Welcome to the show, Monse. Thank you so much for having me, Gracie. Monsev, before we start uh, talking about so many interesting things we want to talk to you about, tell us please about your your two important roles that you have at EWTN and also at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and remind our listeners what the Beckett Fund is and the great work that they do.
1: Sure, absolutely. I love talking about Beckett because I can't take credit for its founding. It actually was incorporated on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, so that just went by and we celebrated 27 years of existence. Very exciting, very Marian, but it's a mission-inspired, by the church's understanding of human dignity. The Beckett Fund defends religious freedom for all in courts around the country and at the Supreme Court. Uh, we litigate cases all the way all the way up to the highest court in the land to defend our human right to religious freedom, to not fight over who God is, but to see ourselves reflected in who we are in what we believe and to be able to form people and live that way.
0: So what are some famous cases that our listeners will have heard of that, that Beckett sure, has been, been instrumental in?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor and Hobby Lobby are big cases. Cases that everyone has heard of, uh, big wins at the Supreme Court, and most recently, the Philadelphia foster and adoption case that was a 90 in June at the Supreme Court defending the Archdiocese of Philadelphia's foster care program and their ability to run it according to their religious beliefs so very very exciting victory there so Beckett fi- fights these
0: battles really on behalf of all Americans right because um, this is uh, what what Beckett fights for is something that whether a person is Catholic or Jewish or not Christian or not religious at all these are important battles for all of us to to pray for and to, to get behind right
1: oh absolutely we have cases on on behalf of Native Americans right now at courts outside of um, California in the Ninth Circuit. So everyone has the right to religious freedom. It's an American right. And the government isn't allowed to tell you what that means and who you worship and how you worship. That's really the, the most important point right now when we're seeing the government grow and intrude in our religious beliefs.
2: And Monse, you all were involved in a recent case that was heard, I believe, last week at the Supreme Court that I myself wrote about. One of, you know, many ways that... Um, We're talking about government shouldn't be telling people um, how to live and what they believe. And that has to do with religious freedom and school choice. And this is something that's near and dear to my heart, Um, having gone through the pandemic with three, now four little kids, and really seeing the absolutely extraordinary bravery and courage and creativity of our parochial school in opening. And that was so important, especially because so many um, marginalized kids benefit from parochial educations and in some cases the government helps families with tuition assistance. Can you tell us what was at stake in that case and, and why should why should people care about this most recent Supreme Court case on, on school choice and religious liberty?
1: Sure, I'll give you a little bit of background. You know, over the past five years the Supreme Court has bravely taken on getting rid of something called Blaine Amendments which are basically just amendments to state constitutions that don't allow government funds to flow to religious school. So they discriminate on their face saying that schools are sectarian, which is code word for religious, saying that anti-religious bigotry is okay. And that's a big problem. The Supreme Court recognized that in two cases, one out of Montana and one out of Missouri. The Trinity Lutheran case was about a tire scrap recycling program in a, in a school, a, new, a Lutheran school. They wanted to participate in the program. The Blaine Amendment said they couldn't, but the Supreme Court said they could. So that was a big win. And then last year, um, out of Montana, you had a case of a mom who wanted to be able to send her daughters who were being bullied at their public school to a private school and it turns out that school was religious and the supreme court also said that it's okay so you're probably wondering well why one year later are we hearing about this again at the supreme court and it's because there was something called a status use distinction so basically it's okay if the school is religious but if it uses the money to teach religion from a confessional perspective so from the view of religion it's not allowed to take that money And that's crazy because just because a religious school is religious doesn't mean that it's not going to teach religion according to its religious lens or religious view. Of course, it's going to do that. That's the whole point. So living according to your values has to be embodied in what you do and how you do it. And that's the whole point of of that case and a big victory. You did write about that. It was great. One of the arguments that
0: I read about in uh, about this case was that and I forget which of the justices made it, but he said that that the only way that that the, the state was distinguishing between giving they would give money to religious schools which taught ideas and ideologies that, that made sense to the people in the state capital who were making the rules, but didn't make sense to people who might be Catholic or might be Orthodox Jews or any other kind of thing with, with, a, with a slightly different perspective than the one held by the common run of humanity that you might see running the state legislature. You think that that is the kind of argument that swayed the rest of the justices?
1: I don't think it did. I think the justices were very clearly trying to understand where um, Maine was coming from with this. They were trying to understand why their definition of education is purely secular. They said that over and over and over again. Public education is defined as secular. The reality is, if they've ever picked up a history book, public education used to be defined by Protestant values. It, the whole point of it was to exist to further Protestant understanding of schools.
2: And, and public education as we know it is, is a pretty recent thing in the history of this country. I mean, education was pioneered by the Catholic Church, you know, univer- like globally, and then if you look at the, the history of the founding of even our most esteemed institutions uh, they're very religious in nature. You just walk around and you'll see, you know, Latin, Christian verses written everywhere. But, you know, going back to the little sisters, Monse, it seems like they just can't seem to get a break from these weird people. who <laughs> just want to keep harassing them. Where does that stand? Have the the lawyers going after them finally decided to leave them alone? Or are they being dragged back into court yet again?
1: So they're still in court. They did win their case for the second time last summer summer at the supreme court so once again in a very different configuration of the case so they won their case against the federal government now they're fighting state-level governments out of pennsylvania and california and pennsylvania california said that the government wasn't allowed to give them an exemption god forbid that these women would be allowed to live according to their religious beliefs um, and not have to provide abortions for their employees but the the state is blatantly ignoring the exemption that's already been given many many times to the little sisters of the poor and they are now in the lower courts continuing to fight this it's 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 their push to have their own version of the contraceptive mandate at at the state level, which also is being copied in New York, not as a contraceptive mandate, but as an abortion mandate flat out. So we're seeing this in many different places, and particularly the case in New York was accepted by uh, the Supreme Court and then sent back down to the Second Circuit for them to tell New York that this is wrong and that in America we do give exemptions for moral and religious beliefs.
0: 2021 has been an interesting year, judicially, for, for religious liberty. From different perspectives, like we just talked about, of course, uh, school choice, the little sisters, and now also, um, of course, the, the big case, <laughs> Dobbs, which is the one that's putting Roe v. Wade in the crosshairs, and, and the you know some people are very scared that Roe might fall, uh, and I hope that they're right to be scared. What do you see for 2022? Do you see um, a big year like 2021, a bigger year? Of course, we have the Dobbs decision, which is going to come down, but it, as far as other cases that might be percolating uh, towards the court.
1: Yeah, well, one comment on the Dobbs case, it's the first time that the Beckham Fund actually takes a position on the framework that was created by Rowan Casey. Just explaining that for the past 10 years, I say that I've been talking about sex and nuns for 10 years, but <laughs> the reality is we've been talking about the effects of this right to abortion on people of who have deeply held religious beliefs that go against that right to kill. And the reality is that that's really done a great disservice to what we understand as religious freedom in this country, because it pits religious believers against people who have yet to find God or who find God in different ways. And so absolutely, Dobbs is going to have a big effect on whether we continue to see big conflicts between abortion and, and religious freedom. But we're also seeing a new, what I would call the new version of abortion 2.0, which is not defying abortion as the right for women to have abortions, but defining abortion as the right to do whatever it is that you want to your body through transgender mandates and to do whatever you want to the body of children without parental consent in the name of changing their sexual orientation and gender identity. And that's a very scary thing that the Supreme Court might have to look at. It's already in the circuit courts. It's being argued just this week at the Eighth Circuit coming out of North Dakota. So we're watching this very carefully, knowing that it may not be an issue of women's rights, but it's an issue of ideology, gender ideology. And what, what part of it is being examined in the Eighth Circuit Court? So the Obama administration, in its sweep of executive orders that it put out before they left office decided to put out something called the Transgender Mandate, Mm -hmm. which forces hospitals and doctors to perform gender transition procedures and surgeries and counseling as well as prescribing all kinds of drugs and therapeutics to children. To children and, of course, to adults who want them, but children without parental consent in some situations. And that's highly problematic. The medical community does not agree with this. And for the government to be mandating people saying, well, you can't be a doctor, you can't have your license, you can't be a hospital, you'll be in violation of anti-discrimination policies, and we'll shut you down or we'll fine you. That's untenable. It's just wrong. And so we have two cases, one out of Texas and one out of North Dakota, that were big wins that stopped this with nationwide injunctions. But Biden administration has said that they're going to fight it and that they want to see this go through.
0: I'm really glad Beckett is uh, paying attention to that and is fighting it. As a doctor, I I am I'm really distressed by the way that medicine has been twisted especially in the trans i mean first through abortion 100% that's a big deal and i think that that was probably the way into all this as you as you mentioned a moment ago but in transgender surgeries for instance or hormonal alterations um, it's it's asking doctors to supply these and or to perform these things on on patients very much against our our judgment because Were meant to not harm, first of all, and some of these things are barbaric. That the things required for these these uh, transgender transformations, which in the end are cosmetic issues, that you know they're they're like cosmetic surgeries, basically. You can never change a person's sex. So thank God that Beckett's on the ball.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Monse. I was so interested. I was recently looking at the the docket for the Dobbs case. And um, I hadn't gone through and looked at all the amicus briefs for both sides. And I was just stunned on the pro-life side, how woman dominated it was. I mean, you you had to kind of like pick through to find some guys. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it was really this issue, this religious liberty issue. Uh, It started with the Obamacare contraception mandate that got me a lot more outspoken on this and writing about it. And I think that was the case for you, Gracie, and and Montse. at the time we were working together at the Beckett Fund. And I, you know, I think that it's always worth stepping back and reflecting on the fact that 10 years or so after this sort of struggle um, between religious liberty and, you know, so-called reproductive rights or whatever you want to call it really got heated up it's been women who've been at the forefront and it's like you go to any of these supreme court rallies you look at the dockets and it's just you know that is the really it just stands out how fired up women have gotten in defense of not just life, but also religious liberty and when those two issues meet at the crossroads.
0: Does that make sense to you, uh, Monse? For instance, oh, when I go to mass on, on, on a random day, it's mostly women sitting in the pews, <laughs> men too. But I mean, women have a very uh, strong interest uh, in life as mothers, as sisters, as, as as daughters. We have a strong interest in religious liberty as religious people who understand the the, the huge consequences of falsely separating um, religion from from our politics that in in the sense of saying no religion your your religiously informed mind your conscience doesn't belong in politics doesn't belong in the public square that's not an American concept
1: absolutely and I think that Ashley makes a good point about women being at the forefront and the reason we're at the forefront is because we want full femininity to be an option for us as well we want to be whole women in the workplace not half women not want to be men we want to be women and that means that the workplace has to make room for us us to be able to have children and have families. I'm not married. I don't have children, but I think about it all the time. I want that option. I want to be able to be an executive and at the same time decide that I want the time to bond with my children. And I think other people want that for themselves. And and women have woken up to the reality that they, they need that and that abortion has allowed men to decide that the option for them is to choose to not have children and be like men or step out of the workplace altogether. And the pandemic definitely showed that to everyone, that those who suffer the consequences are women because either America is pregnant or it's not. And if it's not, abortion rules. And if it is, we have to have the capacity to let women be women. No, absolutely, Monse. And I love seeing
2: you on the news now. And I think um, it's so important to have um, not just women delivering the news, but women in a Catholic news outlet like EWTN, which, lest we forget, was founded by a feisty woman. And I recently <laughs> wrote a different piece talking about, you know, some of the silly smear campaigns on, on EWTN and the reality that it's a network that's done so much to elevate the voices of women. Tell us how your show is going and what are the news stories that you have reported on, especially in, in the recent weeks that have really sort of Left an imprint on you.
1: Thanks for that, Ashley. The new show on EWTN News in depth, that's what it's called, EWTN News in depth, is a, it was really pioneered to give a little bit more room for discussion about what happens during the week so it's an hour-long show that airs at 8 p.m. on Fridays and re-airs at 11 o'clock on Sundays that has a top line usually on the record interview there's a I'll give you a scoop we're actually airing an interview with Cardinal Pell to talk about Vatican transparency and financial reforms this Friday wow. and then Jonathan Rumi will be on as well to talk about the Christmas special for The Chosen so it spans it runs wow. gamut <laughs> in terms of very serious conversations and at the same time letting people talk about their faith and what it actually looks like when you live it. Looking through the news, thinking about what kind of information we need to have those kitchen table conversations with our parents and our children. And then at the same time, how does it, how do you actually live that faith? how does your Catholicity inform who you are and how you live your life? That's the show, basically. It's a huge privilege for me to get to do that.
0: Well, I was, I felt very privileged. I was on your show a week or two ago, right yes, after the, the doves. I, and I was on with Heather Hacker, who is a wonderful uh, Texas attorney, who was the one who submitted our brief to the Supreme Court. A brief that I really loved because it has pictures in it. And that's, yes. it has pictures from my work, uh, from ultrasound of, of the fetuses. And of course, her, her point, her aim in this in this and my aim and the other doctors the the neonatologists and the OBGYN that contributed what we wanted to do was to show the court and I hope that I hope that the justices that we want on our side that aren't necessarily on our side read it and to be moved by the pictures of of, of those children that are obviously human and obviously very much alive was that uh, was that a good show for you
1: monse <laughs> it was great <laughs> i loved having you on the show Christy. you know you you have this way of speaking to every person you're obviously very educated and your work is very complicated and technical, but you you speak to the heart of the matter. and, And Heather too, she has a lot of experience arguing before appellate courts fancy courts, as I mm-hmm. like to call them. But <laughs> she she can describe what the court was doing. And we really grappled on the show, obviously, about the medical reality and how things have changed. But what, what the justices seem to be looking for, and and I mentioned to you there, and I think it is worth mentioning that even Justice Kagan thought that the, the precedent, so this right to abortion and the way that it was created, isn't necessarily a house built on a deep foundation, but it's a house built on sand. So what is the court going to do? How are we going to learn to to treat women both legally, but also socially. What does that mean? So we're grappling with this obviously at the Supreme court, but I think as a nation, we have to really think about what happens next, what happens after June, what does that look like for children and mothers, and how do we treat them?
0: And what do you see What when you think about uh, a, a post-Roe America? What, what, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? You, a woman who's very uh, deeply involved uh, on a policy level and on a judicial level, and, and of course your your, your work uh, on the news on EWTN, what, what pops into your head first?
1: It's been really beautiful um, on EWTN News In Depth to feature the voices of women who are already being helped and um, and who are giving us given a second chance, not um, through abortion, but through life, to keep their children, to have professions. And uh, we featured the Saint Steph- Stephen Home. Stephen Home, I believe, is how you pronounce it. Uh, that trains women, gives them vocation training, gives them a, ho- a home for about three years. And when they leave there, not only do they get to keep their child and form a family, but they also are ready to live in the world and are given that little bit of support that affirmation to not have to carry the burden of having to choose their life over the life of their child, but instead to be capable people. And a lot of these stories are tragic. So it's been beautiful to know that it's not something that needs to change in America. It's something that needs to be lifted up and fostered, which is our own generosity and love for our neighbor.
2: The one time that I was on your show, Monse, we talked about, um, an issue that's very dear to me and is uh, related to this topic also, which is paid family leave. And um, I love the sort of diversity of, of views you had like a libertarian and um, what are, so it's obvious your show kind of gives something so unusual in the news cycle, gives issues, the kind of complex conversation that they, that they deserve. What do you feel like are some of the issues that um, you've covered or you want to cover that, are really not given the kind of deep thought uh, that we see in our super rapid pace news cycle today.
1: You know, for as much as the U2 movement says that it was there to lift up women, I don't see more women uh, in positions of commentary who have different views. We are kind of used to this one woman who thinks this way and is either, you know, pro-abortion and has this very specific policy background. They're all lawyers. Um, There's, you don't see a diversity of of views. And as we know, both as Catholics, Catholics come in all forms, shapes and sizes and backgrounds. We're a universal church uh, featuring that, but also then featuring the everyday American American That relies on the church to be something for them, even if they're not a part of it. And and thinking about that tension and that beauty in diversity. So for me, seeing different kinds of women who come from different places and maybe are going to speak to someone in the EWTN audience or outside of it on YouTube, someone who runs into our show on, um, on the Internet and and is going to speak to their heart and and allow them to see their humanity and their point of view reflected in the show and and grappled with. We're not scared of people opposing the views of the church, but we want good argument. I, I want a good discussion. <laughs> I like to see, Monsignor, your Hispanic face
0: and your Hispanic warmth on EWTN. You know, the church in America is a very Hispanic church and and growing Hispanic. Uh, and I know that in many in many cities um, and and towns that the when the church is vibrant, it's vibrant because it's full of Hispanics and where the church has declined. So what do you think? Do you like to bring that Hispanic diversity to EWTN?
1: I do. I really enjoy it. I love bringing on um, that, uh, the bilingual aspect of it, too, with Archbishop Gomez. I had a chance to interview him and also have a little chat in Spanish. Same thing with Archbishop um, Nelson Perez in, in Philadelphia. And we also had young people come on and talk about the resources that are given to the Hispanic church and how we do make up more than half of the American church, but we only receive 3% of the resources. Oh, I didn't More know than that. half of the church only receiving 3% of the resources, both in pastoral, so priests that are being recruited and brought in, and the seminaries, but at the same time, parish resources to ministries and Spanish language outreach, and even just catechism that brings and helps assimilate Hispanic uh, families into American reality. So that is a role that's played by the church that I think is really beautiful, that most of America doesn't pay attention to.
2: The press loves to tell the story that, oh, the American church is in decline, and it's not just Catholic church, they just love the story of declining religion. Um, Um, And I certainly don't deny that there's a truth to the fact that uh, there is an irreligiosity that is growing, but it is Hispanics who are driving any and all growth in the church in America. You know, what can we what can the church learn from Hispanic culture and and churches, Hispanic churches where that are really thriving? What are they doing that we can learn from and, and try and emulate in in the rest of the American Catholic Church, um, especially with, with young people.
1: I think there are two things that Pope Francis has focused on that that we just refuse to listen to, and that's community and encounter. Um, Latino and Hispanic families love community. They live in community, especially intergenerational community. And then encounter is they meet you where they are. Um, you're... Your, your Hispanic mom isn't going to judge you because you wore the wrong lipstick that day or most of the time these are families that keep their babies and want to keep their babies, right? So you come home pregnant and your family is going to welcome you with open arms. Are they going to be angry at you? Probably. <laughs> but it's very likely that that family is going to embrace and raise that child and then help you go to school. So there is a there is a, a culture of encounter and meeting you where you are rather than expecting you to be something else that the church can embrace. But that another aspect of community that's really beautiful is seeing the church as the the unit for the community where you receive all of your news, where you receive all of your help, where you come together even if it's for secular purposes. You meet at church. That's your heart, and you saw that with COVID, where all of the resources for food and for information about health updates and um, information about where people could safely gather came from the churches. Which is why the government was so obsessed with regulating churches. So, a nice reminder that. Hispanic communities understand the central role that faith plays in bringing people together.
0: You know, something that always attracts me uh, when, I, when I'm in a Hispanic church is the warmth. There's a lot of yeah. personal warmth and a lot of a lot of touching and a lot of maybe not so much during COVID, but, you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of hugs and touching and warmth. And, and I think that that's something that the Hispanic Church could teach uh, the rest of the Catholic Church in America is that kind of that very human warmth of, of not, not being standoffish and, and cold, but, you know, sort of throwing your whole heart and, 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 and self into the community.
1: Yeah, embracing the body, embracing the body the physical body Mm -hmm. and also kind of the incarnational reality of our faith. Jesus Christ, we're celebrating Advent now, incarnates, right? Comes into being as a physical reality for us to to really know each other. How do you know someone? You hold their hand, you carry them through a difficult time, you you touch their shoulder to comfort them. Um, those are things that we're very much taught to do in in Hispanic community through, you know, physical encounter as well as intellectual and you know uh, you know exchange of words it's beyond that it's a a big embrace
0: well monse thank you so much for talking with us and it's been so much fun like always
1: it's a a meeting of old
0: friends amongst the three of us absolutely and i know that our listeners have enjoyed it very much where can how what time is your show how can our, our listeners watch it and where can they learn more about the beckett fund
1: So EWTN News In Depth airs on EWTN, on the app, uh, on all of our social channels, obviously on the EWTN channel on Fridays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 11. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're there and we air the show uh, live, 8 p.m. and 11, Fridays and Sundays. And then the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is at BeckettLaw.org. And we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So you can't miss us.
0: Thank you so much, Monse. Thank you so much,
1: Gracie. Thank you, Ashley.
0: Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're happy to have Father Roger Landry back with us. You know Father Roger. He's the one who gives us our amazing homily every week. Takes so much time and so much effort and so much preparation to give us really important uh, words to prepare us for Sunday's Mass. He's always so good to us. He is a priest out of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts. He also works closely with the Holy See, spending much of his time in New York. He also just made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land just ahead of Christmas and has a great message for us this Advent season.
3: Welcome to the show, Father. It's great to be back with you, Gracie, uh, after I punctuate with an exclamation point a little bit of every program with the gospel.
0: I know. You're so wonderful to spend that time with us. I can't believe that you made that commitment and then you stuck with it all the way since the beginning. I know it's a huge, a huge commitment from you because you put so much time and effort into preparing the perfect homily.
3: But listen, I, I love Conversation with Consequences. I listen to every program, but at the same time, as a Christian disciple and as a Catholic priest, there's no more consequential conversation than the one that the Lord wants to have with us every week, and it's a real joy for me, even though I'm often recording these at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> on I Wednesday there Thursday, even though like, it, it, it does cost a little bit of my blood. I am thrilled at how many people are able through that means to prepare for that conversation that Jesus wants to have with us at Mass, and so I am really grateful for the opportunity every week to be able to at least catalyze that conversation.
0: Well, Father, one of the things we're we're hoping at um, at our at our show here at our radio show, Conversations of Consequences, is next year for twenty twenty two is to collate all your beautiful homilies and put them out separately so that people can click through those and and find uh, your words. And and your your beautiful prayers. Every homily, is such a prayer.
3: Not to mention advanced plus placement phonetics training from Lowell, Massachusetts.
0: Oh yes. Oh, <laughs> the you know people in Massachusetts don't speak so differently from people in Miami, Father. <laughs> We're not so different.
3: Well, well, thanks thanks for that inclusivity, Gracie. But most mm-hmm. people in the U.S. would disagree with you.
0: I never hear an accent. People say you have an accent. I say no, I don't. I speak very very perfect English. <laughs> So, Father, um, we wanted to have you on, and you were giving us some, some more of your valuable time, because you just came back from the Holy Land, and you made a special pilgrimage, and I believe you got there right before Israel closed its borders. So please tell our listeners what you were doing in the Holy Land, who you were leading, and what beautiful Advent um, opportunities you had there.
3: We were very lucky. We we left um, the Friday right after Thanksgiving, and the, that Sunday, Israel Closed its borders to outsiders for two weeks because of the Omicron um, coronavirus. And so we were able to get there. There were only three American groups in the entire country, and there was only one group from spain i mean it was the four of us (laughs) with all the holy sites straight to ourselves and so i i had 24 pilgrims with me from this great program for which i'm the chaplain of the new york chapter of the leonine forum which is founded by father ani panula and mitch borsma at the catholic information center in washington dc about 10 years ago five years ago it started in new york uh, two years ago it started in L.A., last year it started in Chicago, so we've got chapters in four cities and growing, and it really tries to communicate Catholic social teaching to young Catholic professionals to help them first to live it, but then to incorporate it into their overall life, including their professions. And to help them grow in their faith, we try to take them on pilgrimages to the Holy Land, to Rome, to other spots. We'll we'll eventually likewise take them. And so it's an extraordinary opportunity for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps. As in Advent this time, we were able to go out to meet Christ who comes to us in history, mystery, and majesty, and get to be transformed by him so that from this point forward we're able to walk with him in life far more deeply because We call the Holy Land the fifth gospel. Once you've actually been on the Sea of Galilee, once you've seen the place where Jesus was born and laid in a manger, once you enter into the tomb from which he left, and you bring his risen body back into that tomb in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, I mean, those experiences positively mark you for life. This was my twelfth time to the Holy Land. For most of the pilgrims, it was their first time, and I love to see their pupils dilate when they come to the sacred, most sacred spots in the world, and they recognize that everything that they believed up until now about the faith has a historicity behind it that they never really doubted, but it just wasn't that strong. And, you know, I, 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 the, the way that they hear the gospel from that point forward, the way they live, they live their faith, is going to be impacted. And to be... Um, uh, privileged witness to see those types of transformations is one of the coolest things I do as a priest.
0: That was my experience uh, when I did my pilgrimage. My, I went with my husband, and, and um, both of us were so everything in our heads was so transformed by by being in that uh, the actual place and feeling the the heat and the the lack of humidity, which was a big deal for us because we're from Miami. But the the lack the 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 quality of the air and the difficulty of of moving from place to place in the intense heat that we were experiencing when we were there, which maybe you didn't experience now, um, it made everything that we that we hear in the gospel so human, like the, the human aspect of it, um, it, struck us very strongly in a way that sometimes hearing the gospels, um, those words that we're so accustomed to, sometimes are, doesn't do that for us.
3: When we're meditating on the scenes, the great saints tell us to use all five of our senses. Yeah. And when we're there... Like, the first time I was in the Holy Land back in 1993, when I went down to the Dead Sea, it was 52 degrees Celsius. For those who are good at math listening to it, that was 126 degrees Fahrenheit (laughs) in like Uh, you ponder that when Jesus and the apostles are walking long distances, that was the temperature for half the year. Yes, And it gives you a totally different way of looking at it. Likewise, at other times when you've got the radiational cooling at night, why it would mean so much that Bartimaeus the blind man throws off his cloak and runs to Jesus, not knowing if he's going to be able to find it, because that literally was a security blanket at night when it would get really cold there. And so in addition to temperature, you are able to, hear the sounds, you're able to see the topography, you're able to hold mustard seeds in your hands for example, and Mm -hmm. really see what Jesus is talking about, that eventually this is going to grow so that the birds of the air are able to find nest in its branches. So many aspects come totally alive when you're there, and that's why I think it's so important for us, for Catholics, to try to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Why every Muslim in a lifetime has this commitment to make the Hajj to Mecca, but Christians Christians don't, on our own, with our own freedom, make that commitment and go to Holy Land, that's what's made me bald, scratching my head for so long. (laughs) But then the the second thing is the Christians in the Holy Land really need our support, because there's been a hemorrhaging of Christians in the Holy Land. For example, Nazareth used to be over 50 percent Catholic, now it's 20 percent. Bethlehem used to be 80 percent, now it's about 45 percent. The old city of Jerusalem used to be 25%, and now it's less than 2%. And so for a lot of these Christian churches there, they come alive only when pilgrims come there. And that's a means by which our faith is able to overflow those church boundaries when they're able to see people singing and praying, etc., because there aren't enough Christians still within the Holy Land to bring all of those sanctuaries alive. And so I'd strongly urge people to follow... The footsteps of Jesus and the call to go meet Him there in the Holy Land, so that having followed His footsteps there, we can make the paths here in the United States a little bit more Christ-like.
0: And historically, the, our church always had that that idea of, of of making an important visit to the Holy Land, did it not? All through the Middle Ages and
3: the Renaissance, so it was always an indulgenced spot. That, it, like, if you were given ten years of bread and water three days a week because you'd done something atrocious, you could always substitute it by a plenary indulgence of a pilgrimage to one of these great spots. And because you were risking your life, for example, to go go to the Holy Land, that would be a plenary indulgence. But beyond that. All of life is a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. We walk through this world, and we're hoping to finish that pilgrimage, seeing God smiling at us face-to-face at the celestial Jerusalem. And one of the best means to remind us that our entire life is a pilgrimage is actually to go on pilgrimages to these sanctuaries, whether it's the Holy Land or whether it's Rome or whether it's Santiago de Compostela or Lord of Fatima, you name it. Pilgrimages are really important for us to grasp that our faith is dynamic. Jesus never tells us, stay where you are. He's always saying, come, follow me, and go, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming my gospel to every creature. And so that dynamic aspect of our faith really is brought into relief anytime we get up from our pew in our parish churches, and we follow Jesus, and start to find him out in the middle of the street there in the Holy Land, or in Rome, or elsewhere, so that we're able to take that pattern of sanctity back to the streets of our neighborhoods.
0: Father, what about short pilgrimages that we can do around our homes? How does
3: that work? So there's a huge tradition, for example, in May and October of making pilgrimage to Marian sites, and that doesn't mean you have to go to this huge Marian shrine. It can be that you go to the Marian altar in your parish church or a Marian grotto in a church 10 miles away, etc. So those little pilgrimages can likewise help. which I think to get guys to pray in my experience as a priest, there are a lot of women who are very naturally contemplative and they were able to sit in a pew either or kneel on a kneeler for an hour before Jesus in the blessed sacrament. If you try to take a teenage boy and have him do a similar (laughs) Holy hour, like he's going to be crawling off the ceilings. But if you say, Hey, listen, we're going to do this 10 mile journey to make, to pray the rosary along the way. And if you do it with no lip, I'll take you out for dinner, I'll take you out for ice cream or anything else like this. Those are the types of ways in which guys are able to expend a lot of nervous energy and they're able to pray in a manly way along the way. And so I've always used pilgrimages as a particularly effective way to get to the half of the human race with Y chromosomes.
0: And what about the idea of pilgrimages as a way to relieve ourselves of the stains of our sins, as a way of penance? I think that a lot of that's been lost. Our parish has a pilgrimage that we do every year. It just happened last week, and it's beautiful. Five or six hundred people walked ten miles to um, Nuestra Señora de la Caridad, the, our nearest shrine, the patroness of Cuba. It happens to be, and uh, but there's there's a lot of joy, but not not a lot of sense of um, of penance in the pilgrimage.
3: In in our life, we're we've got to be excellent at two things, Gracie. We've got to be excellent at feasting and fasting. Mm-hmm. We've got to be excellent at joy, and we've got to be excellent at asceticism. And we can live both of those in a good pilgrimage, right? Uh, and a good pilgrimage should have both, that there's going to be a little bit of a penitential side to it. Like, for example, on our pilgrimage to the Holy Land, we got up to pray the Stations of the Cross at 3.15 in the morning. Oh, wow. So that we could, we could finish with a Mass at Calvary at 5. And, like, there are a lot of people who haven't gotten up early in a really long time, mm-hmm. and they want to <laughs> shout. Before the first station, not about Jesus, but about me, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> and, but nonetheless, I, like, listen, you don't have to come, but a lot of people who have come on pilgrimages with me before have said that that was one of the most meaningful things that they've ever done. And, you know, that happens every pilgrimage, but there's, a, there's an asceticism, there's a sense of penance that's there. We can offer that penance up for our sins, or we can, because most of these things are indulgence activities, offer the sufferings, the small little physical sufferings, etc., that we have to endure for someone that we know and love who has died or somebody who's going through some type of very difficult time. So there's a penitential aspect to it. But the most important aspect of our faith is the feasting. Jesus has risen from the dead. He came so that his joy might be in us and our joy might be complete. And so there's got to be a feasting as well. And so one of the things that I always try to work into pilgrimages is is a form of celebration. Even if it's a day-long pilgrimage, that there'd be a good meal with some ice cream for me always, which is (laughs) such an important (laughs) sweet, but perhaps a little bit of wine and things along the way too, uh, to celebrate what we've done because um, that type of natural joy can be the foundation for the supernatural joys God wants to give us along the way preparing us for the eternal banquet in which that joy will know no end.
0: Well, Father, we're almost out of time, and um, I don't want to hold you any longer than I have to. You're very busy. Uh, but tell us, can you give us some words? Uh, this will be this uh, will be airing just a few days before Christmas. We're almost at the end of Advent. Some of us have spent more time shopping and, and being frantic about all the preparations we have to make uh, than, than preparing our hearts. But what can we do in these last few days to really prepare our hearts for the coming of our Lord?
3: The first thing that I'd encourage to do is to stop if even for one minute and just recollect that God is with us. Mm -hmm. What we mark at Christmas is the mystery of Emmanuel, that God is with us. And that's not a past tense. There was no expiration date to God being with us. He remains with us in the sacraments and even beyond the sacraments. And so for us to recognize that we're not alone during life is one of the most important things. The second thing I'd say is, as we begin to think about you know, there's so much good in the generosity that we find in Chris, uh, at Christmas time. But a lot of the times we give into some of the things of the age, like, for example, we'll be generous in material things, mm-hmm. and we'll send cards to everybody that just reminds them that we're thinking of them, that we care about them, etc. But, you know, I would wonder, can we give more spiritual gifts to people? And when we're... Writing a card and signing it. Can we really pray at least for ten seconds, maybe even Hail Mary for each person to whom we're sending a card to, supernaturalize the experiences so that we're much more conscious of the genuine reason for the season at a time in which there's a ramp secularism out there that forgets about God. But more than that, there are a whole bunch of you know commercial interests that try to hijack the season toward. Other goals, whereas for us, we really do have to stay focused, and that begins by slowing down, making room for God, and then trying to spread love of God in the little interactions as we're sharing our generosity with others that we want to share the divine giver at the same time.
0: Well, thank you, Father, for those words, and and I will be taking them to heart, and I'm sure our listeners will be too. And uh, I hope you have a very blessed Christmas, Father.
3: A joyous Christmas to you, to your your family, Gracie, and uh, my prayers for all the listeners, even to this episode of Conversations with Consequences, as well as those who have tuned in over the course of the year. God wants to have a really consequential conversation with us this Christmas, as consequential as it was in the conversation with the shepherds, in the conversation with the magi, in the basic conversation that even we would have with the beast there in the manger. Give God a chance.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Rachel Landry and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation God wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we begin our proximate preparation for Christmas. On the fourth Sunday of Advent each year, the Church always has its focus on the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Church does this not merely because Mary has an obviously unforgettable role in the birth and life of Jesus. The real reason is because the Blessed Mother is the model of how we should be living our Advent. Mary is, we could say, the personification of Advent. God the Father, through her immaculate conception, had prepared her from the first moment of her life to be the worthy mother of His Son. Like a faithful daughter of Israel, she had prayed throughout her youth for the coming of the Messiah. When she was a young girl, she discovered that she was part of God's answer to that prayer, but in a way that would have far exceeded any Hebrew maiden's prayers. Not only would the Messiah be her Son, but her Son would also be her God. Her yes to the Archangel Gabriel launched the immediate preparation for the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Each year on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we explicitly follow the footsteps Mary traced on that first Advent. In doing so, we're more than traversing the physiological and historical events that preceded the Lord's birth. We're entering into Mary's response of faith that is a guide for us along our own pilgrimage of faith. And so with the Lord, let us climb within Mary's womb this Sunday, and listen to the beat of her contemplative heart, which was treasuring within the greatest of all mysteries, so that our Christmas may be fruitful like that first Christmas." This Sunday we travel with Mary to Ayn Carim, the birthplace of St. John the Baptist. During the Annunciation, after the Archangel Gabriel had told Mary that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, she would conceive in her womb a son whom she would call Jesus, Gabriel told her as well that her cousin Elizabeth had also conceived a son in her old age. As soon as the Archangel departed from Nazareth, Mary, too, made plans to leave. Although she was still a young teenager, she went with haste to take care of her elderly kinswoman, who was pregnant for the first time. We know today that if a woman is pregnant in her 40s, there are many health risks. It's possible that Elizabeth was considerably older than that, and ancient Middle Eastern health care was nothing to brag about. Without question, Elizabeth would have needed some assistance. But notice that the angel didn't command Mary to go to help her. He didn't even suggest that it would be a good idea for her to go. He just stated the fact that Elizabeth was pregnant. And that was enough for Mary to spring into action. Mary's love spawned in her the desire to help out. Mary's example of care for those in need is an example for us all. Ein Karim was located a few miles outside of Jerusalem, which is 60 miles from Nazareth. From here to get there, first she would have had to have walked about 40 miles downhill into the plains of Jericho, then steeply uphill for about 20 miles to the holy city of Jerusalem before crossing the holy city to descend to Zechariah's house. None of that scared her. We don't know if she traveled alone in the typical caravan of pilgrims. There's no evidence that St. Joseph accompanied her appearance, St. Joachim and Anne. But while we don't know with whom she traveled, we do know that she traveled with incredible faith. During her journey, there was no way she could have confirmed humanly that she was pregnant. Jesus still would have been the tiniest embryo in her womb, probably 8 or 16 cells according to his human nature by the time she left, well before an infant had legs to kick. She would only know she was pregnant by faith in Gabriel's words. Doubtless, along the journey, she was meditating on what the angel said to her and how all the prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled in her. In going to Ankara, Mary became the first missionary, the first bearer of the good news that would change all of human history, forming Jesus to be the itinerant preacher he would become even before he had developed the tiniest of feet. Mary was able to bring incredible joy to Elizabeth and to the fetal John the Baptist, because she was bringing Christ. And Mary was able to burst out with joy in her famous Magnificat during the scene for precisely the same reason. This brings us to the first of three lessons we can learn on the fourth Sunday of Advent. To bring joy to others this Christmas, we really have to bring them Christ. Jesus is the greatest gift that we can ever bring to someone we love. This is something all of us need to remember, especially at Christmas. We can buy kids all types of clothes and toys, but if we aren't trying to give them the Lord Jesus, then we're really giving them little more than monopoly money. We can send out a thousand cards and letters, but if we're not praying for those we write, that they come to the Lord. And if we're not trying to help them encounter counter Jesus with our meager words, then to a large degree, what we're sending is not much better than junk mail. Unless we try to bring Christ to them, we're not really giving them anything truly lasting. Mary didn't bring Elizabeth ancient Hebrew pregnancy textbooks. She wasn't bringing John the Baptist's cute little circumcision outfit. She was bringing Christ. And hence, she was bringing them everything. As we prepare for Mass this Sunday, Mary wants to bring us Christ in a similar way to how she brought him to Ein Karem. She wants us to learn from her example and to inspire us to bring her son to others with great haste and joy this week. We all know people who need Jesus in their lives, who need his mercy, who hunger for his love and presence, perhaps even without being conscious of it. But many of us can behave like spiritual Ebenezer Scrooges, selfishly keeping our relationship with Jesus completely to ourselves and not sharing the greatest gift we have received with anyone else. Mary's example shows us the way to live Advent well and explicitly challenges and calls us to bring Jesus to our relatives and to those we know who are in need. We see in the Gospel this Sunday that as soon as Elizabeth heard the sound of Mary's greeting, John the Baptist leaped in her womb. Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she burst out saying, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. The Holy Spirit inspires Elizabeth to bless Mary among all women because of two things, the blessed fruit of her womb, and her faith that the Lord's words to her would be fulfilled. In other words, she was blessed because of her embryonic Savior and Son, and because of her faith in Him. That's the second lesson we can grasp in this Advent pilgrimage with Mary, that the greatest blessing in the world is Jesus and our faith in Him. This is the gift we should be longing for this Christmas, because this is the one that will make us truly happy. Even if we were to receive for Christmas the entire inventory of whole Amazon warehouses, that would not be as valuable to us as the gift of God and the gift of increased faith in Him. It's important for us to grasp how much God wants, us, wants to be able to praise and bless us for our firm faith, that all He has promised us will be fulfilled. Mary cried out in her hymn of praise later in the scene, All generations will call me blessed. And that prophecy came true. We still call her blessed today for the same reasons. Because the Lord, the blessed fruit of her womb, is with her. And because of her faith, which is the model for every disciple. As we prepare for Christmas, the Lord is calling us to make these our priorities. The Father who gave us the gift of His Son, the first nativity, wants to give us that Son anew this Christmas. To be God with us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. But he wants us to ask for him in faith and respond to him in faith, by making the time to be with God in prayer, by saying, let it be done to me according to your word, by allowing the Lord's words to be fulfilled in us in all the decisions we make. The last lesson that we're called to emulate from that first advent Mary lived is what she did at the end of the scene. Soon as Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, blessed her, Mary's contemplative heart exploded in prayer. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, she said. Mary's response to the blessing of God's love and coming into this world, into her heart and into her womb, was not just faith, but prayer, which is probably called faith in action. If God doesn't just exist, but is really God with us, then a response in faith should be prayer, to be with God. The Advent preface, every priest in the world prays this Sunday, stresses the irreplaceable importance of prayer in preparation for Christmas. We pray, it is by his gift that already we rejoice in the mystery of his nativity, so that he may find us watchful in prayer and exultant in his praise. Mary's heart was filled with his wonder and praise. Her soul magnified the Lord and her spirit rejoiced in God. Ours are called to do the same. God wants to help us magnify him, to rejoice in his love and thank him for his blessings. Only the soul that doesn't magnify itself can magnify the Lord. And that can only happen when we center our lives on God, not on ourselves or on our material possessions or anything else. If we were to ask Mary, our mother, for the best way to prepare for her son's birth at Christmas, she would doubtless say that the most important is going to her son in prayer. The same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary in Nazareth This Sunday will overshadow the altar. The same Jesus whom Mary carried in utero to her cousin Elizabeth will come to us in Holy Communion. Through Mary's intercession, may we do what she did after the Annunciation and bring that Jesus out to others who so need him this Christmas so that he can make them and us leap again. God bless you.